This morning we are continuing our series in Ecclesiastes, a series we've been in for a few months now. Last week we got to the halfway point uh, and we've learned much about this man known as the preacher or in the Hebrew Kohelet. He is a man that is searching for the meaning of life. He is testing all that life has to offer. But again and again, he finds it lacking in meaning. And he repeatedly says that in response to his experience and his discoveries, he just says, all is vanity. All is meaningless. It is a vapor. It doesn't last. And it's a striving after wind. He describes, he uses that to describe just the brevity of life and the emptiness of his pursuit. He, he's like a man walking in one of those carnival fun houses where mirrors distort everything and the, the pathway is at one moment bumpy and then it's sideways and he can't quite catch his balance. That is what is happening to the preacher. And, and partly because he mostly sees life, as he says again and again in his, in his book, uh, he sees life from under the sun. He sees life from the road as he's driving along rather than from above. And so he, he does acknowledge at times that God exists, but as one who is only distant and uninvolved mostly in the affairs of humanity. And this leads him to wonder repeatedly, is, is, is there anything for life for this life? And more importantly, is there anything after I die? Is there eternal life? Is there any existence? Or we, do we simply cease to exist? And his despair brings him to conclusions. And we come across these conclusions throughout the book. One is, is if this is all there is to life, he says a number of times, it would be better to have never been born. That's my conclusion. Life has no meaning. Life is just confusing. If that's all there is, it would have been better to not be born. And then he comes to, but at times, let's enjoy life. Let's eat and drink and be merry because God has created this world. God has created us. God has created life. And so let's enjoy it. And, and he's, he's right about that. Well, in today's passage, Ecclesiastes 6, 10 through 7, 14, the preacher is going to ask some questions today. Questions that are questions that we often ask as he observes the uh, adversities of life. And he tries to answer them with a list in Proverbs verses Proverbs 7 verses 1 through 12. And then he concludes in 7, 13 and 14 with how we are to respond. Instructions on how we should handle suffering and the life that God has ordained for us. So look at chapter 6 of Ecclesiastes. And starting in verse 10. Whatever has come to be has already been named. And it is known what man is and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? 
For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Father, we, we ask for help this morning. Help to discern what you are saying in the words that this man has written. Lord, would you give us that discernment that we might draw near to you, that we might be taught by you. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that it holds. Thank you for the life that it brings. Thank you for the faith that it encourages. Lord, thank you for the conviction that brings change. Lord, use your word this morning to shepherd your church. Help me to shepherd them as well. In Christ's name, amen. Well, in verses, chapter 6 and verses 10 and 11, the preacher wearily recognizes that he is not in control of his life. A struggle that probably many of us have. We like to control life. We try to control life. We do all sorts of things to control life. And, and they're not bad things. We, we watch our eating. Many eat organic, take vitamins, exercise. Uh, you do the things you think to prolong your life, to control your life. And yet, we don't really have control of our destiny. The Lord is the one who determines the day of our death. The Lord is, so eat all the chocolate you want. (laughs) That's my philosophy. Never deliberate, just eat it. Here in verses 10 and 11, 
the preacher recognizes he's not in control. He reflects back on, on creation. He says, whatever has come to be has already been named. And it is known what man is, that he is not able to dispute with the one stronger than he. What has been named? He's looking back to creation here, to God naming everything, the earth, the heaven, the seas, the moon, the night, the day, the light, the darkness, etc. And in his reflections, he faces his limitations. He recognizes that God is the one in control. God is the one who has created. God is the one who has named everything, which is for us who have faith in Christ, that is great. We have a God who is in sovereign control of every day, of humanity, of all of life, of everything that happens. And he recognizes here that not only is God in control, God is the creator, he, he can't argue with God. He, you don't dispute with one who is stronger than you. You don't fight with God. Paul talked about this in Romans when he says that the the pot cannot argue with the potter. (laughs) Don't argue with the one who made you. And so here he recognizes that arguing with God is futile and it is meaningless. What What advantage is there? The more words, the more vanity. It is. It is. It is vanity. It is meaningless to think that you can argue with God. Back in the 70s, there was a Broadway play, and one of the songs in the play was, Your Arms Are Too Short to Box with God. Exactly. <laughs> exactly what he's saying here. But, but recognize, too, I think myself included, many of us argue with God, especially in times of suffering and adversity. We dispute with the Lord when we experience life under the sun. And we live life under the sun. We're just, we just should not be looking at life from under the sun, from life from the road. But we do. We argue with the Lord. We often express doubts about God, about his sovereign plans, how we feel about his sovereign plans, the things that he has chosen for us. The preacher is telling us here that our complaining about God's plans changes nothing. It changes nothing. Think of all the questions we ask. Think of all the arguing we do over God's plan. Why did you let this happen? Ever asked that question of the Lord? Where were you? How could this possibly be good? If this is your great plan for my life, why was I ever born? That's just a few of the many questions we are tempted to ask Or we ask God, we dispute with God, we argue with God. With the sovereign God who is the one who created all things, who did name all things, who calls all things into being, the one who is the sovereign and good God, who does only good to his children. 
And yet we, we can argue with them. And the preacher wisely comments that these kinds of questions are of no advantage to man. And in, in, in verse 12, but in verse 12, he, he, imposes, he poses some questions of his own, which, which are questions that are sort of at the essence of our, of our lives and the way and the struggles that we have. Verse 12, he goes, For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life? Who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life? And, and he goes on, for who can tell man what will happen after him under the sun? Well, that is a great question. That is a great question. The preacher has some great questions for us. And the proposition, did it, did it come up? Did the proposition come up? In the prosperity and adversity of everyday life, we show our trust in God when we consider that what He is doing is always good. In the prosperity and adversity of everyday life, we show our trust in God when we consider that what He is doing is always good. It is always good. Two main questions are asked this morning, and those are two points, so to speak. Number one is, who knows what is good for us? That's the question the preacher asks here in verse 12 of chapter 6. For who knows what is good for man? The preacher answers this question with a list of contrasting better than Proverbs. If you see chapter 7 verses 1 through 12 are all Proverbs. And if you'll notice as well, there is one word that keeps coming up again and again and again. And it is the word better. A good name is better than. It is better to go to the house. Sorrow is better than. It is better for man to hear a rebuke. Better is the end of a thing. On and on. There's these proverbs to answer these questions at the end of chapter 6. To answer the, the questions that he asks for who knows what is good for man. God knows what is good for man. I can just answer the question right now. God knows what is good for man. You want to know who knows? God knows. And he, the preacher goes on to tell us how he knows that God is. And, and, and God, he does this in an unusual way. Look at verse, verse 1 of chapter 7. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. So first, he tells us, this is what is good. This is what God says is good for you. Funerals and houses of mourning. That's what's good for you. The day of death is better than the day of birth. And in verse 2, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. And then he goes on, sorrow is better than laughter. For by the sadness of face, the heart is made glad. 
the heart of the wise is in the house of the morning and the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. So God's, God's conclusion for us this morning and his answering of the question in verse 12, what is good for man is this, funerals and houses of mourning. That's not how I would plan it. This teaching is counterintuitive to us. In four verses, the preacher makes statements that are seriously strange. It's, it's very similar, though, to Jesus speaking about life in the kingdom in the Beatitudes because he talks about blessed are the meek, not the strong. Blessed are those who hunger, not those who are filled. Blessed are those who are poor, not the wealth, wealthy. Blessed are those who are persecuted, not those who overcome. So there is this counterintuitiveness to the kingdom of God and to the word of God. And that's what we're coming up with here. And in these verses, this, the preacher speaks of sorrow as better than laughter. The day of death as better than the day of birth. And going to a funeral and houses of mourning as better than going to a wedding reception. I like wedding receptions better. The food's better. The feasting is better. The joy is there. But how are, how are funerals and, and houses of mourning better than feasting and babies being born? How is that? Because de- death is not a topic we, we like to talk about. It's a dark subject in our culture. But it's not a dark subject in the kingdom. It's not a dark subject in, in Scripture as we think. As Christians... We celebrate death. As Christians, we should be known for dying well. As Christians, death shouldn't be something that we talk about in dark corners. Death is something we should be talking about as when I get there. Paul Paul said, listen, I, I don't know what to do. I don't know whether to go home and be with the Lord or, or stay here and, and continue serving you. I would rather be with the Lord, but I'm going to hang around and stay with you and... Um, I don't feel that way. I, I like you. And I, but being home with the Lord. And, and so, but there's only one way to get there. You have to die. And so to talk about death, um, we should be able to, to talk about death and, and find it as something that is good, not something that is dark and, and we depressing and we don't talk about it. One story, Edward was lying on his deathbed and the family was taking turns spending time with him. As he was speaking to his young granddaughter, Emily, Edward suddenly smelled an all too familiar smell. Why, it was his favorite, apple pie. His wife, Sandy, must have been baking it for him to enjoy this one last time. Emily, dear, asked Edward, would you please go ask grandma for a slice of that apple pie? It smells so delicious. Emily ran off to fulfill her dying grandfather's last wish. A moment later, Emily returned empty-handed. Where's my pie? questioned Edward. Grandma said it's not for now, responded Emily. It's for the funeral. (laughs) No doubt on my deathbed, somebody is going to ask me to eat something organic to keep me healthy. 
who would that be? <laughs> Listen, death is a part of life. And it's the ultimate end of our physical life. And it's the entrance into eternal life. In two weeks, we're going to celebrate the resurrection because death has a good meaning. Death meant something, means something. Death and funerals have something to teach us. And that is why the Lord in this passage is telling us that death and the houses of mourning are good. Death has something to teach us. Douglas O'Donnell in his commentary says, when we go to a funeral, we should think to ask, how will I stand before God? At a birthday bash, frat party, wedding reception, or whatever other kind of party one might attend, people do not normally evaluate how well and wisely they're living their lives. We should not underestimate the divinely appointed opportunity that every funeral allows. Outside of each funeral home, God holds up his picket signs. Life is breathed. Death is inevitable. Walk wisely. And within each funeral home, every casket cautioned us, redeem the time, and, the question, and questions us, how are you using your time? In 1 Corinthians 15, 26, Paul tells us that death is an enemy. It is. It's the enemy. It's the final enemy. But it's been overcome. It's been defeated by Christ's resurrection. But you know what also death is? Death is a powerful evangelist. Death is a powerful evangelist. At every funeral, death stands up and proclaims the reality of life. At every funeral, death stands up and says, this is going to happen to you. What will you do? And what will that day be like? And that is why the preacher tells us the day of death is better than the day of birth. It's better to go to the house of mourning to the, than to the house of feasting. How often at a wedding reception are you faced with the brevity of your life? How often at a party are you faced with the eternity that lays before you? It is important for us to consider death. Think about what will be said about you at your funeral. Will your reputation in life honor Christ or will it reflect poorly on him? You know, it says in verse 1 of chapter 7, a good name is better than precious ointment in the day of death than the day of birth. You, you can buy expensive perfume, but you cannot buy a good name. You can put perfume on a pig and it's not going to help. It's just the reality of life. We can try and cover up who we really are. But how we live will come back to confront us. And that's why a funeral and a house of mourning confronts us with who we are and how we've lived and what we're really like inwardly. Is there inner character? Is it genuine? 
So the day of birth reveals nothing about the one being born. We rightly celebrate the birth of a baby as a joyful occasion, but we have no clue who that little person really is or what they will become. The day of our death reveals who we really are, what we became, what we were like, and what our inner character was really like. So the first thing that the question is answered who, who can know? Who knows what is good for man? Well, verses 1 through 4 of chapter 7 tell us it, it's, it's funerals and houses of mourning. That's what's good for you. Now, there's a lot of other things good for you, so don't limit the life of the Christian to, yeah, all I do is go to funerals and houses of mourning. Uh, no, there's, there's more to it. In fact, he moves on. He says, what else is good for us is wisdom. Verses 5, verse 5 transitions us there. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. And he goes on, for as the crackling of the thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools. This is also vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better then the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry. And he goes on to talk about wisdom is what's good for us rather than foolishness. It is in verse 5 and 6, it is better to listen and hear the rebuke of the wise rather than to listen to the song of fools. That's pretty straightforward. Fools want to hear flowery, sweet words. But a rebuke is not that. Fools despise correction. I taught my children Proverbs 12.1 from an early age. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge. And this, he who hates correction is stupid. That's the only time in the Bible the word stupid is used. He who hates correction is stupid. It is better to listen. You want wisdom? This, you want to know what's good for you? What's good for you is to listen to a rebuke, is to listen to the rebuke of the wise rather than the song of fools, the, the flattery of fools, the flowery words that somebody tells you to make you feel good about yourself. And this isn't an anti-encouragement message. It's just simply, listen, you want to grow? You want to, you want to hear what is good for you according to God? It is the rebuke of the wise, which we all need. And he goes on in 710, he said, it's better to be patient and learn to wait than attempt a quick fix to get your way. Verse 7, surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. The pursuit of sordid gain leads here in verse 7 to a corrupt heart. It is better to wait for the outcome 
than to be proud and decide you know what is better. That is what he's after here. He's saying, look, when adversity strikes, bear it patiently. When difficult times come, when there's oppression, don't, don't get driven. And even the wise are tempted into madness. Even the wise are tempted to be foolish in difficult seasons. Even the wise can give out bribes here. And he says, better is the end of a thing. Yeah, at the better to wait, better to be patient in the adversity that you're in, in the trial you're walking through. That is where wisdom reigns. That is what you need. And so as he, he goes through this list of what is better and what is bad and what is better and what is bad, he is just saying, listen, when the when we experience the day of adversity, when we fall upon hard times, it can be so easy to get angry, to get angry at God, to get angry at others, to be impatient about the trial. I've been under this trial for three weeks. Or I've been under this trial for three years. Or I've been under this trial for three decades. I'll most likely be under this trial until the day I die. How do we respond to that? How do we react to that? Well, the preacher says that those who are not wise, those who are fools, are quick to get angry. Anger lodges in their heart. They're angry with God. They're angry with God's sovereign plan. They dispute with God. They dispute with a good God. When we experience the day of adversity and when we fall upon hard times, it can be so easy to complain. In fact, he, he says this. Here's, here's where we, we kind of reminisce. Verse 10, he says, Don't say this. Why were the former days better than these? Do you ever say that? You ever look back to the good old days? Oh, life was much better back in. Life was better. And you hear mostly old people say that, like Larry Earls and Larry Wethge and Tom Ryan, guys like that who, <laughs> Larry Malamut, who, yeah, do you, remember, do you remember the good old days? Do you remember when Christians were actually committed to coming to church on Sunday morning? He says, no, 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 don't, don't do that. Don't, don't do that. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not wisdom that you ask this. That's not what wisdom is. It is not wisdom. Now, wisdom is, is there to help us not reminisce on what used to be but to rejoice in what is happening right now because we serve a good and gracious God. In verse 11 and 12, the preacher sings the praises of wisdom. He says, look, here's what's good for you. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Wisdom is like the protection of money. 
when you kind of hit a bump in the road financially and you are able to draw from your savings, it preserves you for that bad season. And that's what he's saying here. When you hit a bump in the road, when you face adversity, when you face a trial, the wisdom that you've stored up protects you. It secures you. It keeps you safe. That's what is good for you. So to answer that age-old question in verse 12 of chapter 6, for who knows what is good for man? God knows. And God knows that what is good for us is to contemplate really what life is about at funerals and houses of mourning and to pursue wisdom, to seek wisdom, to receive wisdom, to receive the rebuke of the wise, to to receive correction, to grow. These are good things because wisdom protects us. Funerals and houses of mourning protect us. That's the answer to the first question. And then the second question he asks is, for who can tell... Who can tell man what will be after him? That's the second question. And verses 13 and 14 of chapter 7 help us answer that. Because no one can predict the future. No one knows what will happen tomorrow. All that Jesus tells us in Matthew 6 is that don't worry about tomorrow. Each day has enough trouble of its own. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Only God knows. The admonishment in these two verses is simple. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, again, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Whatever happens in our lives, the preacher here is telling us, consider God. Consider the work of God. He has a purpose in whatever he does. Even if that purpose never is revealed to the person it affects most. Let me say it. He has a purpose. And it is a good purpose. It is a perfect plan. Even if he never reveals to you why. Even if you never learn in this life why you went through what you went through, why you are going through what you are going through, why he's allowed to happen to you what has happened. Whether it is financial difficulties, physical difficulties, relational difficulties, the trials and and troubles of living life in a broken and sin-scarred world, God is good. And we are to consider this God who sent his only son to die for our sins, that we might be reconciled to him, that we might experience the ultimate good in life, which is a reconciliation in our relationship with him, to be called children of God, to experience the inheritance of eternal life, the promise of eternal life, to live in eternity with the son of God. That is all good. That is all good. And this world that we live in that is so broken, that is so ravaged by sin, this world which we live in that does not get any better, it gets darker, it doesn't get lighter. This world in which we live in, in the midst of all of this turmoil and trouble and what we see and what we hear and what we experience, the preacher's admonition is consider God. 
Where else do you have to go? Where else can you go to find true hope? To find true encouragement? To find lasting hope? Consider God. And don't look to figure out everything behind his purposes and plans. The preacher asks us to consider the work of God and he says this, who can make straight what he has made crooked? See, that is, that is my tendency. I'm sure that some of your tendencies is that when things are going bad, we try to make straight what God has made crooked. I don't like the direction this is going. I don't like what is happening to me. So what am I, I going to do? I know I'm going to take control. I am going to take control. And I am going to straighten out God. Because if I were God, I wouldn't do it this way. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? I'll tell you who. No one. Battle all you can. Press forward all you want. Manipulate the circumstances to whatever you think is best. You cannot change what God has ordained. You cannot. And what God has ordained, what he has made crooked, is good. Don't you dare define it as bad if God made it crooked. Because God's the one who's done it. You may not like it, and it may not be comfortable for you, and you may want to change it, but that doesn't make it any less good. And it is for your good that God does it. There, there are so many things in life that appear crooked to us, like death and mourning and sorrow and pain and loss and adversity and trials. Those things look crooked. Thomas Boston wrote a book called The Crook in the Lot. It's a wonderful book, and the title does not mean he's thinking about a thief in the field somewhere. No, The Crook in the Lot is, he rather means that things that happen in all our lives that we wish we could change but can't. There's a crook in our lot. There's a crookedness in something going on in our life. And we want to change it. And he, he writes in his book, While we are here, there will be cross events, as well as agreeable ones. Sometimes things are softly and agreeably gliding on. But by and by, there is some incident which alters that course, grates us, and pains us. Everybody's lot in this world has some crook in it. Douglas O'Donnell goes on to say, We all struggle with the twisted expressions of divine administration. I love that expression. The twisted expressions of divine administration. Why, when the world is in the hand of a good and sovereign God, it is such a crooked place. Why does the dial of his wheel of fortune more often stop on bankrupt than on win a trip to Hawaii? Yet part of the point of the crookedness is to straighten us out as the preacher does in these last two verses. That is the point of adversity is to straighten us out to our crook in the lot. And how does he straighten us out? 
Well, in verse 14, he says, look, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. Anybody here ever struggle with joy in the day of prosperity? Anybody need pastoral help with that regard? I mean, if you're struggling to be joyful when you're prosperous, come talk to me. I, I can help you. Uh, any, anybody have it? No. Nobody struggles in the day of prosperity. He says, and in the day of adversity, consider God has made one as well as the other. And so what is your response? In the day of adversity, be joyful. So that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In other words, you're never going to know what tomorrow holds. The future is not ours to see. Que sera, sera. <laughs> it is not. But what is ours to see? What is ours to see is God in his goodness revealed in his son who intercedes for you and me daily, who made access to the throne of grace by his shed blood, who promised good to us, who sends good to us, Oh, brothers and sisters, in the day of prosperity or in the day of adversity, be joyful. Be joyful. Because this life, as he says in chapter 6, verse 12, look at what he says, which he says, for the who knows what is good for man? Well, God does. And while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. I know, if, I know that there have been nights where all night long, it just feels like the longest night in the history of mankind. It just won't go away. I, whatever's troubling me, whatever pain I'm experiencing, whatever whatever difficulty, it just, the night goes on and on. And it feels forever. And add those up over time. And it can feel like this life is an eternity. But it is not. It is a shadow. It is a shadow. And, and at the other end of this shadow is this light. And it is the Son of God. It is the Son of God who waits this life is brief. And so while we're in this brief life, rather than disputing with God, rather than trying to determine what we believe is good, rather than living foolishness, no, no, let us live in such a manner where we look to God as our good, that we receive from God and His hand all that we know is good, and that we rejoice whether in prosperity or in adversity. Father, thank you for, thank you for sending your son that in the midst of this challenging and difficult world, we are not alone and we have experienced your ultimate good in Christ and we experience your good through the working of your spirit day in and day out. Lord, may your church this morning experience the working of your spirit now and for these coming days throughout the week. Lord, bless your church, I pray in Christ's name.
Amen.